we're in the midst of an examination of one of the most famous of all of the judges. If I were to ask you before our series to name a judge from the book of Judges, even if you didn't have a very expansive Bible knowledge or you had not gone to Bible, Bible college or whatnot, even if you had just gone to a VBS back in the day, your, your grandmother took you to your old uh, Pentecostal church, you've heard of Samson. Everyone's heard of Samson. All of the, the characters in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, Samson's probably the most famous. And we're in the middle of our examination of his life. And, and I just got to recap a little bit to kind of set the tone for where we're going, because we're going to be looking at kind of the end of his ministry. We're going to wrap up our our study of Samson. Um, Samson is is just, he's a bizarre guy. Um, Even within a book of bizarreities, Samson kind of sticks out. Of all of the judges, he's the only judge that we're given kind of the origin story, the background of his birth, a miraculous birth. His mother, married to a man named uh, Manoah, was barren, struggling with that. The angel of the Lord... No one less than Jesus comes to her, says, I'm going to give you a son, and he will begin to deliver my people from the hands of the Philistines. Samson grows up at the end of chapter 13 under this expectation. He's been given a specific specific vow, the vow of the Nazarite, something that he was to obey from birth, something no doubt his parents were very serious about as he's, as he's an elementary school student going through his middle school years, the re- early rebellion years of high school. You're not cutting your hair, bud. I don't care what the kids are doing. You made a vow before the Lord. There's a vow. There's a call on your life. Well, well, well dad, all the, all the guys are going to the party. Yeah, but you can't. You can't because you're not supposed to come anywhere near the fruit of the vine. They, they might be drinking and partying and having fun, but that's not for you. God has a call in your life, son. You're going to grow your hair. You'll look weird. And your life will be distinctly different from the other people around you. Well, grandma died. I'd like to go to the funeral. I'm sorry. This vow, you can't be around anything unclean. You've been consecrated. Samson grows up with this expectation, with this calling on his life. Something no doubt he knew of, was aware of. And the moment Samson comes of age, the spirit is moving on his life. He's seeing some things. The spirit's beating him like a drum. The moment Samson is of adult age, what do we see? He runs as far from God's calling as he possibly can. Like he commits right from the jump, the number one cardinal sin. He sees a woman of the Philistines, a daughter of the Philistines. The first exchange with an adult, Samson, he's like, I want her. And his parents are like, what are you thinking? Are you serious? There's not any of the daughters of the children of Israel that tickle your fancy? He's like, no, get her for me. Like right from the beginning, you see Samson wanting nothing to do with the calling on his life. You have this will of God that existing for Samson and Samson's will is competing and it's conflicting and it's at odds. And everything we see in chapter 14 and the early parts of Samson's ministry, all the ways that God uses Samson to begin the deliverance of his people from the hands of the Philistines is circumstance. It's accidental. It's secondary. In fact, God uses Samson's deliberate disobedience to still accomplish his will, which had to have been infuriating for Samson. 
Samson doesn't want anything to do with his calling. He doesn't want to use by God. He's one that shack up with a Philistine woman. And every step along this way of disobedience, this path away from God's will, God somehow still uses him. Frustrating. And then we get to this point in chapter 15. Everything that's happened with the Philistines, the consequences of of him wanting to marry this girl and and what happens when he loses a bet and he has to go and there's uh, all kinds of of, of results that fall out from that. And and he ends up going, he's in Judah, he's chilling out on his own. The Philistines want to exact some retribution, they come, but they're not going to approach Samson. They've seen the supernatural work of God, the powering through his life. And so they ask the men of Judah, hey, can you go arrest Samson for us? So they come to Samson and they're like, hey, bro, do you not know the Philistines rule over us? You're causing some conflict here. So Samson's like, listen, okay, I understand you're in a pickle, a predicament. Tie my hands, bring me, just get out of the way when it all goes down. And we're told that the spirit of the Lord, verse 14 of chapter 15, came mightily upon him so that the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burnt with fire. His bonds broke loose, his hands were free, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, he took it, he killed a thousand men with it. Now, a lot of the depictions, as we noted last Sunday, present this as like the carcass of a donkey. The word fresh means wet. I think, in the moment, Samson's like, I need a weapon, and there's a donkey. I'm going to borrow your jaw. He rips the jawbone out of the donkey and he kills a thousand men with it. Like this incredible slaughter that that occurs. And in response to it, verse 16, Samson then declares, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men, which we noted last Sunday is incorrect. (laughs) Samson slew no one. In fact, the text gives us the the origins of his power. The the Lord slew a thousand Philistines using Samson. Samson was as important to the story as the jawbone he borrowed from the donkey. He was just a tool used by the Spirit of God in an act of judgment against the Philistines. And here he is filled with pride. I have slain a thousand men. No, you hadn't, man. So it was that when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he called that place Ramoth Lehi, or literally uh, Jawbone Hill, probably a good name. Then Samson became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord, and he said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? What a, what a brat. Like, can you declare this as a prayer or just a complaint? I don't know. This is the first time he interacts with God. This is the first time he has any, any interest in some type of relationship. Why? Well, he's thirsty. After killing the thousand Philistines and discarding the jawbone and his little song and dance, he's like, man, I'm parched. I'm famished. In fact, I'm so thirsty, I'm going to die. Like his human, after he declares, I've done this great thing, what's the immediate thing that follows? An awareness of his weakness and he's going to die in his own flesh. Is that an accident? No, man. 
How many times in our own lives, we get haughty, we get proud, we lose the insight, the perspective on on the fact that it's God working in us, God working through us. We get disillusioned, we get off sight. We're like, I've done this great thing. And God's like, oh, really? Well, I need to remind you it wasn't you. And like immediately what follows is some failure. We fall flat on our face. We get reminded of our humanity. Okay, wait a second. Uh, That wasn't me. That was the Lord. Man, I got to keep my perspective on my inadequacy. Paul says, I'm not sufficient of anything in and of myself. Paul says, my sufficiency, anything that makes me sufficient for any part of this, ministry, godliness, walking with Christ, it all comes, it all flows to the power of the Holy Spirit. My sufficiency is in Christ Jesus. If you're uh, if, you, if you feel like you, you overcame some great sin, I did this great thing, you're gonna find your, well, first, that's pride, and, and pride is closer to Satan than whatever sin you were dealing with. So good job. You went from whatever sin that was to now being more like Satan. Pride. And yet God will allow us into a, a, a season of frailty, a failure, an awareness. Samson, he cries out to the Lord, <laughs> a complaint. I shall now die of thirst? What's up with this, God? So the reaction, verse 19, so God split the hallow place that is in Lehi and water came out and he drank and his spirit returned. He was revived. Therefore, he called its name in Hikor, which is in Lehi to this day. And, and there's, some, there's some debate in regards to the language where this, the spring of water, there, there's some argument that can be made that the spring of water actually flowed out of the, the jawbone itself. I'm not sure about that. It seems more that this is kind of a parallel a bit to a earlier kind of work that God did in the life of the children of Israel. Again, note the children of Israel, after God had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians, of which the Israelites could claim no responsibility, Right? Did they bring about any of the plagues of Egypt? No, like it was all supernatural God. People will say Moses delivered the people. Moses did nothing. God delivered the people and he used Moses. Moses was as useful as the the staff in which he, he guided sheep around the wilderness. He was just a tool like Samson. They get to the Red Sea. What happens? God delivers by splitting the water. Did Moses split the water? No, God did. And God led them through. And then the people get into the wilderness and they start complaining. We need food, we need drink. So God provides food. And what does he do? He splits the rock and he provides water. Seems like a similar miracle, similar situation, a parallel a bit between Samson and kind of the story arc of the children of Israel. So he's provided water, his spirit returned and he revived. And I think something happens in Samson at this point. I wanna build a case for an idea because we get to verse 20 and we're told that that he judged, Samson judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, 20 years, if you flip, we won't even get to it, but at the end, we're, we're told that Samson's ministry lasted for 20 years, which, is, which to me is what's interesting in regards to your study of judges, because we've seen this type of a refrain before, often when, at the end of that judge's ministry, Throughout our series, whether it's, whether it's Othniel or Gideon or Deborah and Barak, whoever it might be, at the end of their story, we, we find that refrain. Well, they ministered for six years or eight years or 40 years, right? 
But here we find at the end of chapter 15, what, what should be the end of Samson's story, which then seems to place in context all of the stuff that we've looked at in Samson's life at the very beginning of this ministry, which then bookmarks the end of his ministry with what we're about to see happening in chapter 16. Here's my point. The argument can be made, and I believe it's to be so. Samson began wanting nothing to do with his calling, resisting it, fighting it, bucking it. And then all of this stuff happens at the very beginning where he goes to marry the Philistine, and this all plays out quickly. And then he's got the jawbone, he does this thing, he discards it, he makes this declaration, look at what I've done, now he's thirsty. Man, this isn't me. And then God provides some water that satisfies, that quenches a thirst that's within Samson. A thirst that Samson thought, assumed that God couldn't provide. I think, I think the, the case can be made, and this changes a little bit of the way that you see Samson in his story. I think what we find here at the end of chapter 15 is really the summary of his ministry. That at this point, Samson's like, you know what? I'm done fighting this. I've tasted the water. I've been satisfied and revived. And at this point, Samson embraces that calling. And for 20 years, think about 20 years, the length of time, 20 years, Samson judges Israel. And he's used by God. And we're not told anything about his story in these 20 years, are we? Just like a lot of the other judges that we're not told because he served in quiet faithfulness for 20 years. You'll get to Hebrews 11 and you find Samson included in the hall of faith. And people will often build the argument, well, Samson's included in the hall of faith while his story is predominantly unfaithfulness because of what happens at the very end of his life. I would maybe twist it that maybe he's included in the hall of faithfulness because of the 20 years of faithfulness and that his story ends with a tragedy with grace at the very end, which I do like because that means that even if you screw up your story at the end, if you've been washed with the blood of Christ, Jesus sees it not and still sees you as faithful. So we transition 20 years of faithful service. Now, and that, 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 that word in the Hebrew, that indicates a transition. Now, there's a change, something's happening. Samson, again, 20 years later, Samson went to Gaza. He goes to the Philistine territories and saw a harlot there and went into her. What? I mean, for, for there to be a leader anointed by God, filled with the spirit, 20 years of faithful service to then fall into sexual sin. Have we ever seen anything like that? Samson. Again, if you place this within the context of 20 years, you're scratching your, why Samson? Now, we can make the argument that, that his weakness had always been women. We'll see that proclivity rear its head at the end of his life. 
he saw a woman. He wanted the woman. Samson has this, this gene in him. Women. He goes someplace he shouldn't be, Gaza. He sees a woman he shouldn't have gazed at. Instead of saying, good job, God, and moving right along, he dwelt. He allowed his imagination to run. And Samson goes into her, a harlot, a Philistine harlot. Why? Like, why would he do that? (laughs) Have you ever seen someone fall hard that God was using? And you ask yourself the same question. Why? Like, why? What? What are you doing? Could it have been just that proclivity had he let his guard down? Could his parents have died? His mom passed away. Could it have been some crisis that takes place? We don't see her presence or Manoah's presence any longer. We don't know why. But this is a grave mistake. And it's going to set the stage for a mighty fall and a tragedy. So he goes into the harlot. And when the Gazites were told, Samson's come here. They surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying in the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts. And he pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. (laughs) Samson gets word that there's a trap set. He's with the harlot. Men are lying in wait for morning. When he goes and makes his way, they're going to ambush him. Samson gets up, and not only does he ambush them, but he really kind of disables the safety mechanisms of this particular city. This is, while we read it and you're like, well, that seems like a weird demonstration of faith, removing the gates of the city as well as the gate posts left that city incredibly vulnerable to any type of attack or assault or even wildlife from being able to get in. I mean, this was a great source of protection, so it it yielded great harm. And this seems to be an incredible uh, act of feat Samson ripping it all up, putting it on his shoulders. Some will make the argument that he took it all the way to Hebron, which would have been a 40-mile walk. (laughs) Could be that he just found the closest hill, set it up, make it a point. Either way, Samson knows he's not where he's supposed to be, and he's doing what is forbidden by God, and he leaves. Again, he sees that God still uses his idiocy, to enact punishment and judgment on the Philistines. But then we read, verse four, afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Serech, whose name was Delilah. A couple things about about this. Uh, First, this this is the first time that we're told that Samson loved anyone. 
Uh, earlier, first wife was visual. It was infatuation. He wanted her. Never a mention of love, even though he was going to marry her. The whore, the harlot, no mention of love, pure lust. But in verse 4, this, this gal, Delilah, that we're introduced to, Samson isn't, isn't infatuated. Samson loves her. We don't know how they meet. This doesn't seem like an origin story in the same way that he sees her. He falls in love. Like genuine, his heart is smitten for this woman, Delilah. You should know that Delilah is a Hebrew word. Delilah, it's, it's the name, it's in Hebrew. Um, it's not um, a Philistine name like you would have gotten with Goliath. We'll unpack that later. Along the same line of thought, this location, now it happened, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek. This, this valley, the valley of Sarek, was a northern, uh, a northern town. It bordered the area, the tribe of Dan, the southern part of Dan, and the northern part of, uh, of Philistia. It was a border town. So this is Samson has gone back to basically his, his, the tribe of Dan. This is a board, he's not in Gaza. He's not down at Timnah. He's, he's where he's kind of supposed to be. And there's this woman that he loves. So there's nothing indicating anything abnormal about this. In fact, this might be the first normal thing we've read about Samson. He's where he's supposed to be. He's living in a town he should be living in. Again, a judge, a border town. And he falls in love with what we can presume to be a Hebrew woman. Now, that might be a change in the way you've ever heard this story. Because you would say, well, well, Delilah's a Philistine, right? Show me in the text anywhere that tells us Delilah's a Philistine. You won't find it. Her name, her name is in Hebrew. She's living in a border town. There's nothing that indicates Delilah is a Philistine. In fact, I can make the argument and will at the end that she is a Hebrew, which tells us here, so the arc of Samson's story, divine calling at birth, he's raised under that calling. He rebels against that calling. He has this exchange. He realizes his weakness, his dependency on the spirit. He's refreshed, 20 years of faithfulness. Then he falls hard. And he goes back and he meets a woman a Hebrew woman, <laughs> and he falls in love. This is not the beginnings of something wicked or evil. This seems to be like Samson in a good place. Now, we're told, verse 5, that the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him. We've seen that same phrase used earlier in the story with Samson's first wife, entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Again, border town, Delilah. We're not told that Delilah loves Samson, but we are told that Samson loves Delilah, loves her. The lords of the Philistines, recognizing the situation, seeing a vulnerability, an opportunity, they come to Delilah and they say, listen, we will pay you a lot of money. 
If you can find out the, the, the essence of his strength so that we might overpower him and bind him and destroy him. Which again goes back to our first study. Does it seem to be anything physically about Samson to indicate some source of great strength? It's not like he's the rock. It would be evident the source of his great strength. It's the muscles. He's probably just a normal looking guy that does these extraordinary feats of strength. So they come to Delilah. They say, we'll pay you a lot of money if you can find the source of the strength. In fact, the amount of money, 1,100 pieces of silver from each of the lords of the Philistines, which there appeared to be at least historically five. This is an incredible amount of money. Delilah, one thing we will say of her is that she was greedy. And she saw an opportunity to make a lot of money. And in this culture, this is, this is generational money. This, is, this changes your life type of money. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Fellas, any woman comes to you at night and says, honey, look into my eyes. Can you tell me the source of your great strength? Well, why? Well, I want to bound and afflict you. <laughs> Don't play along. But this is Samson. This is Delilah. We're going to see this really interesting kind of tit for tat. So Samson said to her, ah, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, oh, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. I have that, that line and be like any other man. I had that highlighted because if you want to discuss the essence of Samson's problem, it's that he wanted to be like any other man, but he wasn't. He had been born with a calling and he had been empowered by the spirit and he was used by God and he wasn't any other man. I hope you know that you're not like any other people. You have been born again, not of flesh, but of spirit. And you have been empowered from on high. And you've been given a heavenly calling that runs contrary to where this world is going. You are not like any other person, and Christians shouldn't be like any other people. There's the old adage, we're, we're, to, be, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm afraid that that little cliche has made us more like the world. I think it's a shame. We're to be different. But Samson, he indicates, if it's just in his own psychology, just, I'll be like any other man. Like, like that's what he wanted to be. So the lords of the Philistines, verse 8, brought up their fresh seven bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. How do you not know they're there? And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. I love the poetry there. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now, if you're a rational person, at this point, 
there is a separating of paths from Samson and Delilah. Fool me once, shame on me. Now, to Delilah's credit, she was very honest. Tell me your strength, because I want to bind and afflict you. And so Samson tells her a lie. She binds him, attempts to afflict. She makes good on what she said. She's not a liar. Give her that. She's greedy, but she's not a liar. And Samson, okay, it's a trap. He afflicts them. There's this work. It's fine. At that point, if you're Samson, you're like, hun, <laughs> peace out. And yet, what happens? Verse 10. Then Delilah, he stays. Then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me, told me lies. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and we find it again and be like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. How is he sleeping through that? And said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying awake, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah then says to Samson, until now you have mocked me, you've told me lies, tell me what you may be bound with. She's persistent. And Samson just plays along, doesn't he? So he says to her, if you were to weave the seven locks of my head, which is how we know he has dreads, into the web of the loom, so she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. So he destroys what was valuable property for her. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. Don't you love me? You mock me. If I'm Samson, I'm like, well, don't you love me? What game are we playing here? She lays it on thick, doesn't she? So it came to pass when she... I just highlighted too. <laughs> Pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Literally, again, he wants to die. You, you love the humanity of it, don't you? I mean, you love like, the honesty of the scriptures. And again, this is the second time this happened. Back with the first wife in Timnah, he gives him the riddle. The Philistines threaten the wife with, hey, we're going to kill you and destroy you if you don't find out the rest. And she, she pestered him to death. Like, to the point that Sam's like, I, I can't deal with this anymore. You're killing me. Vexed to death. Literally, I want to kill myself. So that he told her all his heart now. And he said to her, no razor 
has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak, and note, and be like any other man. Okay, so on one end, Samson is being honest here, more honest than he's been in any other conversation, right? The flip side to it is that we reveal, it's revealed that Samson doesn't know the essence of his own strength either. Why why do we say that? Because there's no part of Samson's vow he hasn't already broken. There are three components to the vow of the Nazarite. He's already broken two of the three. It's not as though there was something magical about his hair. You see these golden locks, baby? It's these. If they're cut off, I'm powerless. No. You see, Samson's strength at no point was demonstrated through Samson's life because of his obedience. We have not one example of that. In fact, every example of the Lord using Samson is in spite of Samson and not because of Samson. His hair is not magical. It's not a superpower. But there is something happening here with Samson, isn't there? He doesn't realize where his power comes from. And so he says this. Let's read the rest of the story. Delilah sees that he had told her his heart. So she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, who are at this point also a little suspicious of Delilah. Saying, come once more. He's told me his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees, called for a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before as other times and shake myself free. So Samson has said this, but what he believes is actually told another lie. Samson believes he's gonna be able to get up and do the exact same thing he's always done. Or maybe not, because he does not know that the Lord had departed from him. And note, we're not told the spirit of the Lord, the Lord. That's not a place you want to be. So the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. Again, you listen to sermons on the life of Samson and specifically this story. Uh, you'll hear the, the typical three points. And, and I'll just regurgitate them because they are good three points. It's a good three-point sermon about sin. That sin, first it blinds, and then it binds, and then you grind. And that is a pattern that you will find when you allow yourself to enter into sin, and you compromise in your purity. There is a truth to that. Again, there's a lot of sermons that unpack those three. I'll let you find them on the internet. I look at this story, and I I just, I, I am, I struggle with the big question. Okay, there's lots of things you can draw, lots of application you can pull, but for me, for me, there's just a bigger question 
that I, I don't even know if I have a great answer for it. I'm going to attempt it, but I don't, I haven't found one. That's why. Like, why, Samson? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you playing this game with Delilah? I mean, anyone can tell that she's, she's a bit mischievous in her motivations. That she doesn't have your best interest in mind. Like, why does Samson play this game? Why does he tiptoe closer and closer and closer? Finally confessing, even though he might not even believe it. He pours out his heart. Like, why, why does Samson do this? Now, you'll find to the explanation of that a theory that Samson's just stupid. Like, literally, you will hear Bible studies that will say, listen to one guy, that, that Samson was just dumb. He was a few fries short of a Happy Meal. Like, you go back to the, the, the beginning, he's like, me see woman, I want woman. Like, there's nothing like some great theology that ever comes out. I'm thirsty, me need drink, God. Like, like there's no great theological dissertation from, from Samson. That, like, there's an argument that Samson's just, he's, he doesn't realize actually what's happening until it's too late. Probably, I just don't buy that. I, I don't buy that. There could also be the argument that he was just um, cavalier with his own calling. That Samson had just lived a life in a certain way where God just so often used him in his own rebellion and disobedience that he thought that that just that train would keep going. He's like, oh, I could tell her, I could tell her the truth even. And it won't matter because God's always met me and my dysfunction and he stills used me and he's always protected me. Again, from his birth, he's had this blessing on his life and we've seen this blessing carried forth. Again, not realizing that God's blessing was in spite of him and never because of him. That hasn't gotten through his head. But maybe the argument that he's doing this with Delilah because he's just, eh, God's always come through anyway. And that the whole thing is just kind of one big joke to Samson. Now, before you just write that aside, we kind of, at least I can say, I've seen those type of people. Like I've encountered those people. I've encountered the first, the first group. You know, someone just really blows it and you're like, oh, you're just stupid. <laughs> like you just, you didn't realize the full scope or ramifications of what you're doing. You're a little clueless. But then I've also found that I've, I've encountered that other group of people that like they mistook God's blessing and God's empowerment for God's approval. And then the day came where God was no longer approving. And he gave them over to their sin and they were blinded and they were binded and then they spend their life grinding. Maybe that's it. Still doesn't work for me. That still doesn't work for me. Does it work for you as you're working your way through the story? I mean, there just seems to be something deeper here with Samson, which is why I've spent as much time as I've had on this story arc. So if, if it's true that Samson had this calling on his life, a calling he immediately resisted with all of his being, I want nothing to do with it. And then like Jonah, God uses him anyway. And it's like, I don't care what you think. And he uses his dysfunction. He uses his disobedience. He uses his rebellion. And Samson then gets to the point where he's like, I can't escape this. 
And like Jonah, Jonah throws a pity party while revival breaks out in Nineveh. And Samson maybe in that moment is like, okay, I can't run from this. So for the next 20 years, he embraces it. Which is why he's in the hall of faith. And then for some reason, an old sin, he goes down and sleeps with a whore. After 20 years of faithfulness, he makes a stupid decision. Could it be that this whole thing with Delilah, Samson knows exactly what's going on. But he wants to die. His life is so filled with condemnation, so filled with regret, so filled with guilt. So what would motivate someone to totally self-destruct like this? Man, there's one motivator that's more powerful than maybe anything, and it's guilt. God had called me, and he had empowered me, and he had equipped me, and man, I have just completely ruined it. I'm done. What is the motivation for why people spiritually kill themselves? I've known people that intentionally did what was wrong. And they did it because they were tired of living a lie. And they wanted the punishment. Isn't there something to that? You know, one of the worst things you can do to a kid if you really want to get them good. It's not punish them when they know they're totally guilty. Have you ever encountered that with a child? I have it. My kids have never done anything wrong. But maybe your kids have at some point. No, were they, were they totally, and, and, you, and you didn't yell? You didn't scream? I'll never forget, years ago, I was 15 years old. 15. And I got the bright idea as a 15-year-old that I was going to drive my 17-year-old buddy's Camaro. And it was a wet night. I was grounded but left anyway. And long story, I wrecked the Camaro. And I'm sitting on a curb. The ambulance is there, et cetera, me and my buddy. And I have to call my dad using his cell phone because I've lost mine. And my dad answers the phone. Hello? Dad, it's Zach. What do you want? I I wrecked Joe's car. You're not at home? Nope. Where are you? I'm in the Moorings neighborhood. Click. I sat there. There's woods behind me. Closest time I've ever, I've ever been to running away and joining the carnival. It was that moment. I was like, I could be a carny. Like, I could, I could embrace the lifestyle. This will be much better than anything else that happens tonight. My dad picks me up. We drive home. He doesn't say a word. We get in the driveway. He goes to get out of the car, has not said a word. And I said, are you going to say something? He said, I'm disappointed. And he walked into the house. He could have beaten me. He could have chewed me up and down. There's any number of things that he could have done. Why? Because I deserved it. I knew I was wrong. And I needed to be punished. Disappointment? That was brutal. 
Why does Samson do this? Because he sinned and he sinned and he sinned and he has mistaken God's patience. He's abused God's grace. And now it's run out. I think Samson thinks that he was going to die, that this would be it. Not realizing that the Philistines have a different plan. Because they've taken him, they've gouged out his eyes, and now he's grinding wheat and chains. And then we're told in verse 22, however, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now, on a side note, the Philistines are stupid. The man's told you, whether right or wrong, hey, the source of my great strength is my hair. You know what would be part of the daily routine? Shaving the man's head again. The fact that they're like, oh, let's let the source of his power grow back out. That was a poor decision. Let's just finish the story. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy, which he hadn't. God, Jehovah had. And when the people saw him, they praised their God and they said, our God is delivered into our hands the enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were merry, they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars, two pillars that held up the, the upper floor. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars which support the temple so I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women and the lords of the Philistines were there about 3,000 and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. And Samson called on the Lord saying, and this is the first prayer. Oh Lord God, remember me. I pray. Strengthen me. I pray just this once. There's no demands. There's humility. Oh God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple and he braced himself against them, one on his right and another on his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might. And the temple fell on the Lord's and on the people who were in it so that the dead that were killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and they brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel and the tomb of his father Manoah. And then note, he judged Israel 20 years. Let's go back to Delilah for a moment as we close. I don't believe Delilah was a Philistine. Not only does the text not tell us, but there's something about her being a Hebrew that fits and substantiates a much larger allegory that we find within the life of Samson. And that is kind of an antitype of Jesus. Again, origin story, deliverer, he goes solo, he can only do it by himself. There's, there's, there's this process, this development. Samson, in the act of delivering the children of Israel, 
an act of being the deliverer. How does it how does it play out? Well, he is betrayed by a Hebrew wife that was a traitor. And don't we see that with Jesus in the act of delivering? That Jesus was betrayed by the very people he came to save, a Hebrew wife. Remember, it was greed. Judas took the 30 pieces. And then Samson, how does he ultimately bring about this deliverance? He gets tied between two pillars and we're told there's one on the right and there's one on the left. And can you imagine the picture of Samson there with his arms spread out? He lays down his life. In fact, we're told that there were more delivered through his death than through the life that he lived. More people have been touched by Jesus, their lives transformed by Jesus. More people have been delivered by Jesus through his death. Truth? You know, in the midst of that moment where you're like, I have ruined it all, and God is probably done with me, which is where I believe Samson, Samson found himself. I've ruined God's calling. God can't use me anymore. My choices, my sin, my rebellion have ruined it all. There's no way God could save me. There's no way God could change me. There's no way God could use my life at this point. And yes, there's consequences to sin. And yes, there's consequences to rebellion. But Samson also at the end teaches us that God is not done with the failure. Even if the failure comes after 20 years of obedience, God is still not done with the failure. Samson's hair grew out. I make the joke, Philistines should have kept cutting it. But something happens within Samson's heart, doesn't it? And you see that in his prayer. There's no pride. There's just humility. Samson has been touched by grace. You know a person who has been touched by grace when their life is no longer their own. And they don't see it as such. They're willing to lay down their life for others. And, you know, I do think that there's something about Paul, Paul makes a statement. He says, he says, there's sin so that grace may abound. And then he says, don't sin. <laughs> like he adds that qualification. But there is something about the magnitude of the grace that we experience following the magnitude of our failure. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Father, we just let Samson's story resonate.